This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin from Stories of Win, and I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Marta Garrido, who heads the Cognitive Neuroscience and Computational Psychiatry Lab at the University of Melbourne. Marta, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Just uh, at the top of the podcast, I should say I have a bit of a cold today. So if I sound at all congested or start randomly sneezing, um, that's why. (laughs) That's fine. You sound beautiful, no problems at all. Fab, we'll get going then. So generally, we like to start off these interviews by asking, how did you first become interested in studying the brain? It is a bit of a roundabout story. So I started off studying engineering physics and um, on my fourth year, I had a, a course on biophysics by this really inspiring professor uh, who loved the brain. And uh, he was just so enthusiastic that it was quite contagious. And um, and so I was just really fascinated by all the things to do with how re- we record brain signals, uh, how much we can learn about the brain by using fMRI and EEG and combining that with uh, behavior. Um, And then the second thing that happened was that he recommended a number of books about the brain. And I read this book by um, Marcus Raichel and uh, Michael Posner uh, called uh, Images of the Mind. And I was just like, okay, this is it. I just love this. (laughs) This is what I want to do for for the rest of my life. So, yeah. So it was very much a light bulb moment, you know, that contagious passion and some really fascinating topics. You were like, this is it. This is where I'm going. Yeah. It was really like falling in love. (laughs) Mm. Did you find that the things that grabbed you to begin with were also the things that continued to interest you throughout your academic journey or did it change as your understanding developed? I think from that fourth year to starting my PhD, it it changed a little bit because as I was still learning about, you know, memory, emotion, I think from my PhD onwards, I'm still interested in the same things, which is um, how we learn about regularities in the world and how we use those to to make predictions about the future. And that has been like that for (laughs) more than a decade. So So what was it that your PhD focused on and how did you find transitioning to grad school from an engineering and a physics background? My PhD was about trying to understand what are the brain networks that generate auditory prediction errors and using computational modeling to describe that network um, and simulate what auditory prediction errors should be like and then comparing that to what we actually measure with EEG. And and if the two match very well, then we can say that we have a a pretty good model uh, about what is happening inside the brain. Um, And that's probably the the, the thing that I I did that had most impact was to characterize the the network underpinning auditory prediction errors. Um, The transition from uh, physics and engineering to to my PhD, I wouldn't say it was smooth, but it it felt quite natural. because the the tools that I learned from signal processing and um, instrumentation and uh, uh, mathematical and statistical analysis was so useful uh, when it came to um, to the, the, my PhD work of what I had to do with the data and even theoretically I thought that um, the perspective that I was um, adopting with a 
um, predictive coding framework was very much like a computer. It was looking at the brain a bit like a computer. And of course it's not, <laughs> but um, the the framework that, that I was using in terms of the brain making predictions about incoming stimuli and comparing those predictions with the actual input. And then if the, the those inputs and predictions uh, don't match, then you use that prediction error to change your model of the world and update uh, your predictions. And that to me just sounded like a loop <laughs> when you are programming. So it just said, oh, this is just a, a for loop. Um, and I don't know, somehow that analogy just, I, I found that really exciting that you could use things from uh, programming or computer science to understand principles of um, general principles of brain function. So your sort of quantitative and uh, engineering background sort of gave you a useful like computational framing of the problems that you were interested in. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm, I want to hear a bit more about this um, auditory prediction error. Could you give me a, a real world example of what that looks like and what sort of system you were studying in terms yeah, of that process? Yeah, I can definitely give you a real world example and then a very boring lab example. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the real world example would be like you're going to a concert and you know, the group very well and you know their songs from the first few seconds of a song when they start playing you can guess what the next few minutes are going to sound like now if this is a live concert there's often some arrangements you know it sounds slightly different from what the recorded version you have at home and your brain is amazing at detecting that and there's really like oh you know this is new this is different um and if we were able to measure what's going on in the brain when that happens with say electroencephalography or magnetoencephalography we would see a huge deflection in in the brain um, responses to to that violation in one's expectation of course in the lab um i mean there's been some interesting paradigms in the lab with musicians actually i should say but the by vast the majority of paradigms that are used to study these processes are very boring <laughs> and they they basically use a structured sequence of repeating sounds beep 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 and then something different like beep so um some oddball sound that deviates in a particular property it could be frequency pitch um duration so you were using these sort of repeating sounds and the violations of expectations with human subjects combined with techniques like EEG and MEG to see how their brain responded to these violations. That's right. Yeah. So what did you find? So uh, I found uh, a number of things, but the most important thing was that there is a, a network uh, of uh, different brain regions that is engaged when uh, these predictions are generated. And that involves uh, the superior temporal gyrus, including the primary auditory cortex and uh, the inferior frontal gyrus, um, mostly on the, on the right um, hand side. And so uh, using that, something called dynamic causal modeling, which is a, um, a method to understand uh, brain connectivity, we were able to simulate what these um, uh, responses should look like. And that simulation matched the observations that we, we made with our recordings very well. Um, I also show that these prediction error responses involve both feed-forward and feedback um, interactions. And I, I think that was uh, really quite exciting to um, understand that there is um, not just bottom-up uh, 
activity, but also top down. And, and that goes in line with ideas of um, predictive coding, which um, state that our perception of the environment is a combination between our senses and our predictions. So uh, in a sense, perception is more than just r- passively registering information for, from the environment, but it's actually a, an active process of, of prediction. So when you say top-down processing, you're referring to this process like shaping the expectation, which then influences sub- subsequent violations of that expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So how was the journey getting to that discovery and that observation? Uh, were there any particular challenges that you faced along the way? Oh, oh yeah. So, yeah, there were, of course. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> when do I even start? <laughs> The, at the time, now dynamical modeling or DCM is widely used and there's manuals and example data sets and tutorials, um, you know, lots of information online that you basically can figure out things um, um, on your, you know, sitting on your desk. Um, but at the time it was, the method was still developing so there were a lot, lots of challenges in sort of fine-tuning the models and, and the methodology and then also coming up with statistical um, ways of summarizing your data. But that, that was actually a lot of fun to, you know, to set up a pipeline of analysis that ended up being quite useful for, um, for a number of people. That, that was pretty exciting. Also, this challenges of publishing my first paper, which now I, I understand is just is just normal, but the first time I tried to publish a paper and it was rejected, and you know you get you get <clears throat> really sad and take it very personally. But then I, soon I <laughs> I learned that okay, well that that's just that's just what happens. Would you say that that gave you a greater insight into the publication process, or do you think the main learning experience was learning not to take it personally, and that? That is just part of the the journey. Oh, you know, I, I to be honest, I don't know if, if I ever learned not to take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because you know you put so much of yourself into what you do and you love it. I mean, I love it, and it is hard to not take it personally. But I did get an insight about the publishing process and also uh, being a bit humble about that. Your work is never finished. Your work can always improve, and whoever you send it to. Uh, the reviewers will always find something that could be better. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. Um, but also, even after you publish something, it doesn't mean that is the ultimate truth. And I think that is something that um, I embraced it quite comfortably, but I see a lot of students who are very bright, very intelligent, but have a big problem in, in embracing that there is uncertainty in whatever you do. And even after publishing a finding, you might find out in a decade that actually that's, that, that's no longer the best way of doing things. Yeah, I've definitely had conversations with other PhD students. I mean, even postdocs and PIs about the fact that obviously there's this, the publication culture and system that we've set up relies on the construction of a narrative and a story. Mm-hmm. And that story is constructed based on the data available and our best understanding of the system at the time. But actually, you know, it, as you say, in 10 years time, it may be disproven for whatever reason. And I think that is something for 
bright people seeking answers to difficult questions that can sometimes sit uncomfortably because it feels like you're not necessarily reaching for the truth <laughs> because we yeah. can't know what that is. Exactly. I, I think we, you know, <laughs> being a bit philosophical, but I really believe this, that one only approaches the truth in an asymptotic way, but will never really reach <laughs> that point. <laughs> No, absolutely. And I think that's actually a really useful reframe because I think that enables you to feel like the work that you're doing or the work that we're doing as a field is valuable, even if not every individual aspect of it is wholly correct, because we're sort of building towards this slightly non-linear way of developing a better understanding, even if we turn around in eight years time and go, actually, the work that I did back then, I do it differently now. Yeah, yeah. So I understand that you did your PhD at UCL. Yeah, that's right. Um, with with Dr. Carl Friston. Yes. Um how did you find being in that research group? Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. I just uh, loved every minute of it. Um, Carl is a very inspiring uh, scientist, and um, and he really taught me a very special way of thinking about the brain and thinking about turning worries into questions. Um, he actually he did say that to me once, and I thought, oh yeah, that makes that makes sense. <laughs> Turn your worries into a, a scientific question, um, and they, I mean the, the the group was very uh, methodsy. I was at the time when I started the only person collecting data. <clears throat> Everybody else was um, doing methods, um, and there was a. It was very much like a team. It was very collaborative. Um, people were very helpful, and it was um, and it was fun. Carl is very. Um, he has a brilliant sense of humor. And he enjoys what he does. And that transpires into everybody else, I think, in his team. So sort of like with your original professor back in undergrad, who had that contagious enthusiasm for, for yeah, biophysics, yeah. who sort of also had that contagious enthusiasm and, and joy coming from your PhD supervisor. I think it does make such a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does. It just makes you want to go to work um, every day and you know enjoy what, what you're doing. It's really the, the people you work with that, um, I mean, obviously the topic, but people uh, almost um, in par that makes you um, enjoy what you're doing. I think in yeah this podcast we sort of hear that time and again and I completely agree um, with people's perspective that it really is a, a group and the team and the mentorship and the relationships that makes your experience. Your, your outcome obviously is sort of dictated by the questions you're asking but your experience of that is really defined by the people you're with. That's right yeah absolutely. Did you find it in any way uh, daunting being the only person collecting data because that's that's quite an <laughs> isolating position to be in even if you get on with the people around you actually that I didn't find I didn't have a, a problem with what I found daunting was that I thought oh my god I'm the less knowledgeable person in the room <laughs> everybody seems so clever um, and also <laughs> I think I was the only woman <laughs> so maybe that is that's a more salient point I was the only woman and the youngest um, but the fact that I was the only person collecting data, I, I think it was actually it worked out really well because uh, the the people developing the methods needed data to test out their methods. And so that was something that I could contribute. And in the end, I, I published lots of papers as a co-author um, during my PhD be because of uh, sharing the data. And, and, and if I hadn't shared my data, if I had just you know, published my PhD work, um, then I would have had fewer publications and less fun as well. <laughs> <laughs>
did that feeling of you know being slightly intimidated by the skills of the people around you particularly as the youngest and the only woman did that change over the course of your PhD did you notice that I mean I I guess uh towards the middle of the PhD when you you have those um, milestone stages to me that was important in realizing oh actually I've done something and I've learned lots of things so I guess I, I got more confident um, uh, as I went but um, even though it was slightly intimidating because I thought oh my gosh these people are just the most clever people um, they were just so supportive as well and and so yeah it's just Carl created a very nurturing environment, so you felt that um, you could always get get help. It sounds like an amazing environment to be finding your feet in the academic world. Yes. So where did you go after your PhD? So then I went to UCLA, um, Los Angeles, um, and I worked with Russ Poldrack. Um, it was a very short postdoc. Um, and then after that, I came back to London, actually, again, um, to UCL, but uh then I was working with um, Ray Dolan in a different group, same uh, centre, but different lab. And what was the focus of your postdoc work? At UCLA, I um, worked with fMRI. I continue working with dynamicals and modelling, but now applied to different type of data. And then um, back at UCL, I um, started working with MEG, magnetoencephalography. And then... Um, my interest was still trying to understand um, regularity learning, but I started to be more interested in statistical learning, mostly influenced by Manish Sahani, um, who was at the Gatsby. I mean, he still is at the Gatsby. And I was also very fascinated by um, uh, blindsight. So very late in my PhD, in my career, actually, postdoc, I found out about the phenomena of blindsight, and um, which... You know, now that I'm uh, in a psychology department, it makes me feel <laughs> very, very silly because my my students in their third year they know about blindsight. Um, but yeah, anyway, so I, I got really excited about that phenomenon and I started to um, try to understand whether this idea of shortcuts to the amygdala um, was really a thing, and and so um, that a lot of my work focused on on trying to 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 find those shortcuts. So did you do some work focusing on blindsight? I never actually tested anyone with blindsight. Uh, I would love to. But uh, I was inspired by the work done in blindsight by uh, people like Alan Pena, Beatrice de Gelder, uh, Marco Tamieto and, and others. And so um, but because I didn't have the access um, to, to those data, I thought about, well, what can I do in healthy individuals that um, could help test the theories driven um, by the blindsight phenomena. Um, and so all the work that I've done in my postdoc at, um, at UCL and, and also then uh, as a lab head um, has been all in um, typical individuals. Um, some data we collected with um, MEG um, and then other data we use from, from the Human Connectome Project, actually, which has been a, a huge, yeah, an amazing uh, resource for us. And what theories were you testing? I've been testing the idea that there is a direct pathway from the pulvina to the amygdala that bypasses the V1 um, altogether. And, and so um, I've done a few studies uh, looking at this. One was with, um, with MEG, 
But then more recently, um, we used the, the, um, the data from HCP, both the diffusion imaging, uh, where we can uh, reconstruct the white matter pathways, which we were able to for, for Povina to, to uh, amygdala directly. And then we, we used functional MRI, which again, we could, uh, from, the, from the HCP data, uh, very likely they have a, a task looking at faces with different types of emotion and then another um, another task where there is uh, emotion recognition. So we could put all of these data together, together from structural, functional and behavior to try to see if there was converging evidence for the uh, this pathway um, from pelvina to, to the amygdala. First of all, being able to reconstruct it, but then seeing it whether it has a functional role um, in, in emotion processing and also whether it enables better behavioral performance? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so this potentially provides a, a, a circuitry or a substrate by which information could be processed directly in blind sight patients without the need for processing in V1. Exactly. You must be absolutely raring to get some blind sight patients that you can I test am. this on. I am. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, we almost did. Um, there was one patient, uh, TN, uh, who we wanted to to bring to Australia to do some testing, um, but unfortunately he passed away. I never met him, but I heard all about him. Wow, that's a, a project that can be put on the back burner to be revisited at a later date. Yes, with a different person. <laughs> so how did you demonstrate that this pathway had a, an enhancing effect on this visual processing? So we saw that for people who had greater fibre density, for this pelvinate to amygdala connection, they were um, better at recognizing fear in faces. And this was done in 600 plus individuals. Um, and then the other thing that we saw was, uh, was that these network models with this pathway were better overall in explaining the functional data, better than models without that subcortical pathway. And also the connectivity from the functional MRI, which is called, when you use dynamic causal modeling, it's called effective connectivity, but it, it basically means how much the activity of the pulvina is influencing activity in the amygdala, say. And we saw that that dynamic connectivity um, increased when the fiber density of that same uh, pathway increased. So there was, I guess, a positive relationship between the structure, the function, and the behavior. Is there any existing structural data that you could use to look at if this is there's a higher density in blind sight patients? Do we have that data? So Marco Tamieto and Beatrice de Gelder had a paper um, about a decade ago showing that in one blind sight uh, patient had stronger connectivity in the damaged uh, hemisphere. And they interpret that as a compensatory mechanism mm. for um, utilizing that information, albeit um, unconsciously. So there could be some structural rationale, but the uh, functional and behavioral data is yet to be sort of fleshed out. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I want you to do that experiment now. (laughs) 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 So after you did some of this work on, um, you know, testing pathways potentially involved in blindsight in uh, typical patients, where did you go from there? Well, I'm, I'm kind of still following that idea, actually. Uh, there's another study that we're doing at the moment, but I won't say a lot because it's still, we're still putting everything together. But um, we're looking at uh, subcortical, uh, subcortical short, shortcuts to MT from LGN and Pelvina. So again, um, 
going after this idea that shortcuts in the brain are there to serve a purpose um, of efficiency, uh, but also of redundancy, uh, when which can be useful in the case of insults, particularly for um, vital functions like um, you know recognizing threats in the environment, um, and also for navigating and detecting motion. One part of the things that I do, and then uh, the other thing that I, um, I'm very interested in is in understanding um, regularity learning and how um, how humans integrate information from the environment with uh, their prior beliefs, particularly under uncertainty. And so at the moment, I'm trying to understand where that uncertainty is encoded um, using a combination of, of methods, including uh uh, layer fMRI and um, an MEG. So what do you mean by regularity and how are you testing that? A regularity is, is like a, a pattern in the environment. It's uh, something that um, some way you have to summarize what is happening in the environment. And if you know that, you are able to generate what the sensory environment is going to look like in the future. So... Um, so, for example, we have a, a paradigm that we developed where sounds are sampled from a Gaussian distribution. And so we can show that if this, these sounds are uh, hover around the mean of that Gaussian distribution, the evoked responses look very much like a typical response to something that is repeated or predicted. But if those sounds come from the tails of this distribution, then the brain interprets that as an oddball. And we see the typical uh, prediction error response. So here, the, the regularity is very simple. It, it is determined by the mean of a distribution and the, the variance. So this is the work that's going on in your current lab in Melbourne right now? Actually, at the mo- I don't, I'm not uh, running this paradigm at the moment now. I'm interested in it. It's something a little bit different. I mean, it's related in the sense of understanding how prior beliefs and sensory information are, are integrated and represented in the brain. But to do that, I'm using a, a different type of task where um, we manipulate prior variance and um, and likelihood variance, and we're trying to see whether people with different traits rely more on on prior or likelihood information. So we know that um, typical individuals will integrate prior and likelihood information on the basis of the uncertainty, and relying more on the source of information that has a higher reliability. Um, it's been discussed in the literature that autistic individuals and people with schizophrenia will rely differently on, on these sorts of information. And that's um, what I'm testing um, at the moment. So what is the difference between these priors and these statistics? What's an example of a situation where one could rely on either or and how would they result in different expectations? So this is this only really makes sense when there's a lot of uncertainty in the environment because priors, in a sense, help resolve that uncertainty. I can tell you the example of the task, which is quite naturalistic, I think, uh, compared to looking at Gabor patches, <laughs> which a lot of us do. And I do that too, by the way. Um, <laughs> so the task we're using was uh, originally developed by Aris Villares in Conrad Cording's group. And uh, basically what people have to do is to determine where a coin fell in a pond. What they can see uh, are the splashes of the coin. And, you know, you can imagine you, all of us did this at some point in our childhood to throw a, uh, a stone at the pond and then it has those beautiful ripples and you, you kind of guess where that fell. 
Um, but you don't know where it fell, right? You don't have that, um, that information. All you've got is what that action causes. So that is the sensor information. And from that sensor information, you can determine the likelihood of the position of the coin. Um, but at the same time, we tell the participant that the person throwing the, the coin is aiming at the middle. Over time, even if people didn't believe us, they, they learn that that's the case because when we show the true position of the coin, the coin hovers around the, the middle of the pond. Um, and sometimes the throw is very good. And so the true position of the coin is, is very close to the middle and sometimes it's not very good. And so it kind of goes all over the place. And what we see uh, is that people don't just rely on one type of information. They, they integrate both information from the splashes, that's the sensory information they're given, as well as the prior information that the coin most most likely will fall in the middle of the pond. And we see that people's guesses will shift towards the source of information that is more reliable. So if um, the the throw is very unreliable, meaning that the, the position of the coin is sort of all over the place, um, then observers will rely more on, on the, the splashes, that is the sensory likelihood. However, if the splashes are all over the, the place on the pond, then people will shift more towards the prior. In a sense, they stick to their beliefs and make their choices closer to the middle of the pond. And you said this integration of information is different uh, in cases of autism or schizophrenia or can be. Mm-hmm. In what way would that be different? Yeah, so in autism, there's been two different models for explaining um, over-reliance on sensory information. So there's there's been some data showing that autistic individuals rely more on sensory information than prior beliefs. And the question is, why? And some part of the camp has said, well, the problem is that autistic individuals have, a, have blurry priors. And so because the priors are blurry, they shift towards the likelihood. Um, then there's the other side of the camp that has said, well, that same phenomenon can be caused by a different underlying mental model, which is that there's nothing wrong with the priors, but it's the likelihood um, information that is encoded more precisely. And that will, that, that will have exactly the same effect in shifting people's perception more towards the sensory information. So one of our recent studies was to try to, dis- to um, disentangle um, these two models and, uh, and see which one is, is the true one or more likely explanation of reality. Um, interestingly, we found that they were both slightly wrong. <laughs> At least that's what our data is saying. <laughs> According to our data, they're slightly wrong. Um, uh, what we saw, but, <laughs> okay. but, but the, the precise likelihood model is more correct. So we, we definitely saw that people who are high on autistic traits um, have a more precise uh, encoding of sensory information. Uh, but we also saw that they carry over priors more so. So if anything, their priors um, can be more precise, even if in an incorrect way. So they don't adjust so well uh, to the current situation um, that they might stick to prior beliefs. So they have... And they could potentially have a very accurate encoding of a given situation, but the way that that shapes their expectation may not lend them to come to the correct conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So how, given these two camps, as you've described them, seem to be both a little bit wrong, is there a next step in trying to understand um, 
this yeah phenomenon to be very honest the next step would would be to actually replicate this in a bigger sample because um our sample was admittedly you know very small so i'd like to be very cautious about saying mm -hmm. you know of, co of course i think that perhaps we should revise the model but um i think we need a bit more data to to be sure and then the other thing is um to understand whether this is something specific to the a spatial um task or whether this is more general uh, phenomena can we see this in audition and can we see this in a social context because that is something that it has more impact for the individual you know mm, it's a very real it's a very profound experience and consequence of autism in a lot of cases so it's actually probably the system in which it would be most like useful to test this exactly exactly so in what about in the case of schizophrenia they also have a slightly different way of integrating these information sources yes so there has been even more debate about whether there is stronger top-down beliefs um, which would lead to things like um, delusions or whether there's weaker top-down uh, processes which would lead to things like hallucinations. I think there's you know, a lot of compelling evidence for, for both cases actually <laughs> and it is a little bit hard to reconcile um, the two. But um, what we're trying to do at the moment is to quantify these processes in terms of prior beliefs and uh, bottom up information. So I think so far that the conclusions have been uh, perhaps a little bit indirect or more qualitative uh, due to the paradigm. But I think with these sorts of paradigms that I just described with the coin task where we can actually use Bayesian modeling to quantify the prior beliefs with a number, <laughs> then we will be able to, to really see um, I need to be careful not to, to dismiss. I think that the colleagues have done amazing work. But we haven't been able to quantify the variance in, in prior beliefs. And that's what I'm trying to do at the moment um, with, uh, with my current studies. So I haven't set up this study yet with, with patients, although we, we've got the ethics, yes. Yay! <laughs> um, yay. <laughs> uh, but we've done it in psychotic-like experiences, so looking at traits. And in the trades, we saw that the prior variance is actually larger. So the, the prior seems to be weaker. So in our data, for this particular uh, spatial task, we see weaker priors. But interestingly, we also see weaker likelihood encoding, which hasn't really been part of the debate. But I think it, it is um, something worth considering because the study we've, we ran, it's a huge sample, the traits, and so the effect size is, is fairly small, but um, it is a very big sample and the effect is definitely there. And, and we see that uh, in discovery and validations uh, data sets. Yeah, because my understanding, and admittedly this isn't my field, but I do find it absolutely fascinating, was that often people consider um, in cases of schizophrenia or psychotic-like experiences, there's like an over-reliance on internal models of the world and less of an... Um, integration of incoming sensory information, particularly in situations of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's in line with what you found? Do you think that sounds different? Is, is it somewhat contradictory? Yeah, it does sound a bit different, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, interestingly, in a previous study that we've done, we we saw the opposite. So, you know, it's the same lab, it's the same person. <laughs> mm. um, and we're finding contradictory results in our, yeah. our own data when done in a slightly different way. Uh, so previous study, we used an auditory oddball task and we used dynamic causal modeling to um, understand what is the network underpinning 
um, statistical learning errors, and we saw a, a top-down, um, stronger top-down uh, connection that uh, related to um, more errors and um, and also more psychotic-like experiences in people with schizophrenia. So I'm having to, you know, reconcile that even within my different data sets. One possibility is that there are at different levels of the belief hierarchy, there might be different variability. And so one possibility is that at the lower level um, of the belief hierarchy, there's more variability, but then at the higher level, there is less variability or more precise or less variable beliefs that constrain people's experiences. So that is a working hypothesis. So it could just be that there are uh, multiple complex systems at play here that would sort of give, could potentially give seemingly disparate um, results depending on the the level of the system that you're looking at. Exactly, exactly. And if you're looking at the very simple task that relies on very simple perceptual um, decisions, you might see something uh, that is different from w- when you use a more complex task that um, relies on mm-hmm. you know more abstract uh, thinking. Well, as your PhD supervisor would have said, turn worries into questions. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Lots to, exactly. <laughs> lots to explore there. No, that's fascinating. <laughs> So I'd really like to hear a bit about your experience of setting up your own lab, because obviously that's a huge mm-hmm. journey that any PI goes through. Um, yeah. Definitely a big shift. What was that like for you? Oh, that was probably the most exciting times, actually. I, mean, I have to think, was, was it my, my PhD was equally as exciting, maybe, maybe equally exciting. Um, it, there is, when you start in your lab, uh, at least for me, it was so exciting because you know, finally, somebody trusts you that you can do this, you can grow a lab, you can grow people, and you can drive your research um, in a way that you have just so much control over uh, what is done and so much agency. Um, it, it At the same time, it can be an isolating experience. Like <laughs> the first thing you notice is that now I'm going for lunch by myself. <laughs> Um, but, um, it was pretty exciting. I started off pretty small. I had a, a research assistant and a PhD student and, and a postdoc. And so I could be really hands-on. And at the same time, you know, I could have projects in parallel that I wanted to do, but I couldn't physically have the time to do all of them. Um, also the interaction with, uh, the people, you know, feeling that you are growing a scientist is really quite nice. Um, and it was very special when my first PhD student graduated. There's a sense of, you know, great pride. <laughs> would you say that becoming uh, a mentor and a supervisor was something that came very naturally? Or do you think it's something that you had to learn and sort of shape your strategy for um, over the course of mentoring people? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of what one learns is by observation you know, trying to emulate what your own mentors did with you. But I did feel like I needed to know more, to learn more. And so I, I read books around leadership. Um, I sought out a um, course at university around management, but it was very much, I guess it was a bit too focused on admin uh, rather than the more leadership side of things. And and I, I wish there was more formal courses being delivered especially for junior faculty because that is the the 
the thing that is new, you know how to do research by, by that time when you start a lab, but you don't necessarily know how to lead people and, and how to adapt to different styles of people as well. Cause that's the other thing that, you know, people often think about, uh, oh, what, what's your leadership style, you know? But I think, um, I think usually you have as many leadership styles as people in your lab almost because you need to adjust. You know, being a good leader is bring the best in everyone's, um, bring the best out of everyone uh, under your care. Um, and that means different things for different people. So having that flexibility and knowing what to do in, with different uh, situations is important. So, um yeah, actually, uh, when I became a lab head, there were a number of us. Uh, the institute was growing uh, at the time, and there were a lot of new people starting. And uh, I approached the, the the deputy director of research and asked her, "Can we can we have a a mentoring group for junior faculty?" Um, and she was amazing. She Linda Richards. She said, uh, "Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that." Um, and she held these uh, monthly lunches over a period of a year. And almost every question was about management. And, and I mean, people management. <laughs> you know, what do I do in this situation? You know, Yeah, that sounds like it would have been such a valuable resource and space for, for junior faculty that are just starting to get used to those, to that environment, to those situations. And I, yeah, no, I absolutely see the, the argument for having more formal training, because I imagine that group's something of a rarity. Like if you hadn't suggested it, then it wouldn't necessarily have existed. Mm. But actually learning how to manage, how to work with people, how to deal with situations that understandably, you know, new PIs will never have encountered before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it sounds like there's a real a real need for that and definitely a lack of that at the moment. No, I completely agree. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what would you say was the thing that you found most challenging in the setting up process of your lab? Mm. Well, first of all, was getting the, that faculty job. That was the hardest thing. <laughs> um, I mean... Probably the people management, it goes back to that, you know, understanding how to work well with different uh, styles of, of, of people. Um, it was, I mean, it was very enjoyable. It is, you know, it's still happening. <laughs> I think now I know a, a few, few more things to, uh, but um, yeah, but perhaps uh, when you have to have difficult conversations, perhaps that is the most challenging when somebody is not performing. Uh, that is the hardest thing. No, I absolutely see that. Would you say there's anything that you'd do differently if you could go back now and tell your younger, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed self (laughs) what they should have known? I wish I could go back and say, it's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. I am quite a warrior. uh, So uh, having that reassurance that it's going to be okay um, would have been nice. But also, yeah, maybe saying that... um, Labs go through phases of expansion in, and contraction in both people and funding, and that's okay uh, as well. Yeah, I can understand though when experiencing that for the first time, that must feel a bit daunting because obviously every lab goes through a different journey. Like it's very normal to have a turnover of people. And I mean, I'm sure every academic has had a million conversations about how unstable the funding system is. Yes, exactly. But particularly going through that and it being your responsibility for the first time, and trying to remind yourself that that's normal and it will pass. Um, yeah, exactly. And trying to align the two as well, because sometimes you have money and you don't have the people, and other times you have the people and you don't have the money. Um, and of course, you want to have both align uh, very well. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have a question that is sort of more of personal interest than anything. How have you found working in the UK versus US versus Australia? How would you say the different work cultures um, sort of? Mm, yeah. What's your experience of that? Yeah. Well, this is very much my experience, and you know, um, it, I could be. I don't want to generalize it at all, but the way I've experienced it, the UK and, and Australia, I found it very similar actually uh, in the approach. Um, I suppose, like more generally, I feel the the Australian culture is closer to the UK culture than the US, um, but somewhere in between. Um, the The UK, which is where I was trained, where where I was born, a scientist, um, is very much hypothesis driven, testing models, and that's really where I. That's so soothing for me. I love it. <laughs> And I'd say the Australian uh, approach is, is very similar. The US approach for me, I felt it was less so focused on that and more focused on let's get big data and, and then explore. Let's see what happens. You know, just, let's get masses of data and try many different things um, and see what happens. And, uh, you know, both have pros and cons. One, uh, I guess the American philosophy is more around maybe discovery and uh, more data-driven, um, whereas the, the UK, Australian is more um, hypothesis-driven. Yeah, I think that's that's the, the biggest difference, I'd say. I think based on the light in your eyes when you're describing testing models, we know where your loyalties lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do love uh, my American colleagues, so, uh, yeah. No, but, no, of course, of course. <laughs> No, I'm just, I'm just, just curious. Again, it's mostly, mostly a, a personal uh, question just because obviously I'm coming towards the end of my PhD now. So it's sort of interesting considering like, hearing about people's experiences working in different systems and different environments. Yeah, but, you know, I, if I went back, I would still go to, to America. I think that absolutely opened my eyes about different ways of doing things. Um, and also that there is a value in having masses of data, you know, going back to the um, Human Connecton project, mm. you know, sometimes you just don't know what you might find out or what others might find out. And that has just been amazing. So I really think we need both um, types of approaches. And I, I've learned, um, yeah, I've, done, I've learned a lot um, by having that experience. No, absolutely. I am aware that we're rapidly running out of time. Yes, so I talk I a just lot. Have- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's brilliant. It's been fascinating. Um, I just have one more question for you. Mm-hmm. If you weren't a neuroscientist, what would you be doing? Oh, there's different levels. Uh, I can think of so many things. Um, I'd probably be a bar instructor. A bar instructor? Bar instructor, yes. So I, I love everything to do with dance and um, yoga, ballet. And so I think bar combines all of these with Pilates. And so, um, yeah, that's something that I, I love doing. That's brilliant. Uh, but more realistic. <laughs> but that's probably quite irrealistic. I think I would probably try to to do something more related to my uh, my training. Um, so you know, things that I, have, that I have. Initially, when I was studying physics, I thought I would be a, a physics teacher, a high school teacher, probably teaching physics and maths. Um and I, I think that's something that I would I would actually enjoy um, doing if 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 I uh, wasn't a, uh, an academic. Um, and other things that interest me have more to do with um, doing that sort of thing in an NGO um, context. Um, that's but yeah, 
These are all great and A B C D highly variable answers <laughs> yeah. to this question. Yeah. I know I, very I like random. All, although I'm sure I'm sure your lab group would probably rather you stuck around. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that's probably all we have time for, but thank you so much for talking to me today, Master. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's been a joy.